We're continuing study in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26 today. The events that are getting us very close to the cross of Jesus. Last time we looked at the denial of Peter, first predicted in verses 31 to 35, and then we jumped ahead to see it carried out in 69 through the end of this chapter. But back up a bit, and we'll look at what we might think of as a very familiar scene, one I'm sure you've heard messages about before, but I believe there are always new things we can think about and be reminded of as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane and the conflict of Jesus there in prayer witnessed by some of the disciples. I read from God's Word, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Listen to God's Word. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back again, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is now betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go, for here comes my betrayer. Father, let us learn from this very sacred moment in the life of your Son the lessons that you have for sleepy disciples. For Jesus' sake, amen. Two Army Signal Corps privates by the names of, jo- of George Eliot and Joseph Lockhart, I'm sure never forgot the day that they were the first link in an early warning system that might have protected many lives. They even gave the alarm, but no one heeded the alarm that they gave. You see, George Eliot and Joseph Lockhart were enlisted men who stood watch at a radar station at a place called Opana Ridge on the northern tip of the island of Oahu in Hawaii. 
on December 7, 1941. Radar was in its very early stage of development there. It was in use, but it was not at all, of course, the kind of device with the strength and penetration that it has today. Nevertheless, even in the early device they had for radar, the two men were startled by seeing a large cluster of green blips on their screen heading towards the Hawaiian Islands. They called the duty officer at Fort Schaffner near Honolulu and reported it. But that officer said he believed those blips were merely planes from the American aircraft carrier Enterprise returning from an exercise. He told the radar men to forget it. An hour later, I'm sure you know, bombs and torpedoes from scores of Japanese warplanes rained down on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor as it sat helplessly at anchor, planes on the field, very few, if any, in the air, and 2,400 lives were lost that terrible day because a warning was not received in timely fashion and believed. I believe that tragic day at Pearl Harbor taught our country, at the very least, that we need constant vigilance in our national defense. And today, of course, we, where once we slumbered, you have more advanced radar and satellites and unmanned drone airplanes and all kinds of wonderful technology that guards and watches 24 hours a day all the time. The Bible's three accounts of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are usually studied to look at the central figure, Jesus, as Son of God in His humanity. Here is the struggle of humanity and divinity. As Jesus, the real man, has to grapple and come to terms with the horror of what was awaiting him that night and particularly the following day as he knew he would go to the cross. And usually when we speak of this text, we're speaking of that drama, that soul struggle as the cup of the wrath of God, as it is called, and it is described as that in the Old Testament. The cup of God's wrath is what he's talking about when he refers to a cup. Is before Jesus, he, he knows that it's being placed in his hand, and yet the humanity of the man, not afraid to die in some cowardly fashion, is shrinking back. It's described that he was amazed and confounded by the dreadful weight of what he knew was ahead of him for him to become sin-bearer for you and for me. Now, Matthew's account is a little different than the other Gospels in that it places a bit more emphasis on the presence of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, at ringside center to behold this struggle. And while the disciples may, in a sense, be secondary to that great struggle of prayer that Jesus had, they form at least a major part of what I want to examine with you today. Jesus, we read, specifically positioned those three, the inner circle, 
just as they were the ones invited to the transfiguration and certain other events, he invited them, here, I want you in the front row. The rest of the men can wait over there by the gate. You sit here with me. He wanted them to learn and themselves be warned about spiritual warfare. Well, they got a little bit of the warning. But for the most part, as you read, they slept while Jesus agonized in that crucial time of prayer. Did you ever stop to think about the fact that while we are alive on this world, there really are only two primary, I'm sure you can tell me some others, but there are only two primary reasons why human beings normally close their eyes, right? The first one, of course, is when we sleep. We all have to rest. Our bodies have to recover. However, that mechanism works in us that, that blots out our immediate surroundings for a period of hours and hopefully allows us that refreshment and recovery that we need to then arise and face another day, that's the one main time when we close our eyes. The other major time is when we pray. Isn't that interesting? The only two times that we really close our eyes are to sleep or to pray. Now, when we close our eyes to sleep, it's, it's a time of eyes closed and oblivion is the rule. You, you dream, but you're not directly aware of what's going on in the world around you, unless it's, of course, a very loud noise that ends your sleep. But I'm suggesting today that when we close our eyes for the other reason, we do see. And we see things, in fact, that we can't see with our physical eyes open to the natural world. I'm not hinting that we have some kind of Superman x-ray vision exactly, but there is a sense in which when eyes are closed in prayer, we see a whole world of deep reality that is not observed by any natural means. And it is prayer, when it is conducted alongside the Word of God, that opens up to us the very wisdom of God. We prove that wisdom. We test it. We explore it. We delve into it. And it brings to us awareness of an entire spiritual reality that, that is not just above this world, but through it and, and in it and penetrating everything that we're doing in the physical creation. For that reason, I'm suggesting today, and someone gave me a good suggestion that helped this sermon title, that what Jesus is teaching about here might be called eyes wide shut. That means when we close our physical eyes to pray, God's Spirit is opening our spiritual sight to observe wonderful things and learn new truths and be established in things that we would not glimpse and could not see in any other way when our eyes are merely open to this natural world. I ask you to consider with me first today in this familiar text of Jesus in Gethsemane that prayer focuses radar upon spiritual warfare going on in the present hour. Prayer is a kind of radar that helps us see 
spiritual warfare that's happening all around us and in our very own lives. Now, I've found that there are many Bible commentators when they, who, when they write about this passage and the invitation of Jesus to, to bring Peter, James, and John with him to the distant part of the olive grove there called Gethsemane, the emphasis that many of the commentators say is, well, isn't this interesting that even Jesus was human enough to want companionship and need friendship? He needed the encouragement of these men. That may not be 100% wrong, but I don't think it's the emphasis that the text is making. I don't discount the fact that Jesus was a real man who drew encouragement from companionship. But I don't believe that companionship or encouragement that he expected from disciples was the main reason he asked them to stay close to him. If you would read the text, it seems that something different is in view. Here he is in this, this great emotional disturbance. He confesses to them that he is overwhelmed with sorrow. This isn't just a man afraid to die. You know, if we're saying Jesus was just afraid to die, then he doesn't measure up to the kind of courage that many of his disciples have had in human history as they've gone to martyrdom without any great show of of fear or dismay. There's something more here. We have to understand that he was confronting a task that was absolutely unique and singular. It was almost as if he was looking in at the gate of hell and seeing with his sinless soul in great revulsion the bottomless pit of human sin and all that it would cost and what it was about and what it was like. And not just looking at it as an interested observer, but looking at it as one who was about to be plunged into the midst of it. Now, for the sinless mind of Jesus, the Son of God, that, on a human mind, was enough to bring a person close to the point of insanity. He was almost unhinged here. Luke 22 has the additional report about this same scene that tells us, and interesting that Luke says it with his doctor's mind, that the capillaries under the skin of Jesus must have burst, and we know that this can happen in in, scenes of severe exertion, so that blood actually mingled with his sweat. Jesus was in a place beyond the help of human friends. He was as much alone as any person could ever possibly be there. And so I don't think it was asking for sympathy so much that he brought these three along, but verse 38 tells us why he brought them along. Keep watch here. I want you to watch. I want you to observe. He would need these men to be able to tell the world later what went on there. To observe his battle. To observe the spiritual warfare that was going on. And they didn't completely fail in their assignment, did they? For after all, how do we know what it was that Jesus said three times in prayer and that he went there and and fell down and fell on his face, they saw it. They were awake, at least initially, to see what he was doing. So they didn't fail their assignment entirely, but they certainly failed it in the larger part. 
for after a minute or so of seeing him, the physical tiredness of the day had been a long and hard day. It was well after midnight. Their bodies took over, and they slept. And each time Jesus came back, one or two of them, maybe not all, woke up again and and then listened and watched for a little bit more and then slept again. There's no indication in any of the tellings of this that the disciples themselves ever prayed. Jesus said, watch and pray. We're not told that they prayed. They, they did a little bit of watching, not very much. But they didn't pray. And you have to think that they were there still, besides being tired in a physical way, and that's a big explanation for what happened, but there also was a sense in which they felt somewhat smug and invincible and ready to take on whatever was going to come. Because remember what we talked about last time. Look back for a moment at verse 35 when Peter said, if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. They all were pretty established in their confidence to take on whatever was coming. I won't leave you, Jesus. You can count on us. We'll be there. And they rode along in this confidence in themselves and had to learn the hard way, a confidence in God, only after tasting failure that wasn't exactly the same as Peter's, but every one of them, you remember, ran away. They all failed in their human confidence. I believe the invitation of Jesus to watch and pray comes to us. And it's an invitation to look at what's going on in the world and in our lives but to look at it not just with the observation of a scientist or a historian or, you know, a record keeper, a clerk who writes down a record, to look deeper. It's an invitation to look into the Christ-centered order of things in this world, that reality that overlays and penetrates the day-to-day events that we think are all that is going on. And when we pray, we even look at ourselves differently. We're reminded who and what we are. If indeed we are believers in Jesus Christ, we're reminded as we pray that we're not just helpless victims of circumstances tossed about by waves of things we can't control, but suddenly we're reminded, well, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm forgiven by the grace of God in my Savior who died for me. I'm inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. And I have the presence of Christ with me by His Spirit and the power of Christ and the Word of God to to know what God wants me to do. And I have all these things arrayed to give the power and the grace and the wisdom of my God to be factors of reality in my life more than just human circumstances. And so as we pray about politics and national affairs and family relations that aren't going so well or work concerns or challenges that are happening in our lives or illness or whatever, we start getting beneath, underneath, mere superficial viewpoints. And we start seeing a different reality because we see ourselves in different ways as God's children in Christ. We enter, you might think, I used to be fascinated as a kid with underground caverns, even looking at pictures of them in books. 
The idea that you could walk around on the earth and maybe a hundred feet or whatever below you would be these these glittering rooms filled with stalagmites and stalactites and gorgeous scenes and underground rivers and all of this. A whole reality that you don't even guess as you walk the surface of the earth. Well, that's a little bit of what it is to pray. To see the deeper reality. To see beneath things. And to understand what God is doing. To see a little bit of what God sees when he looks at reality. That's what prayer links us to. You see, I hope I don't have to go on very long today about the fact that prayer is not about, not about your shopping list of requests for Santa God to fulfill for you. Prayer actually is not primarily about asking for and getting things from God. That really is somewhat secondary. Prayer instead is no less than the primary way to link your mind in a privileged relationship to the mind of the eternal God. And Jesus wants his disciples to be linked to the eternal realm in this way, to be, if I may say, plugged in to spiritual radar that shows us warfare going on in in the heavenlies, the schemes of Satan. The work of Christ in redemption, the historic plan of God, the promises of God, the purposes that are far-reaching, and a whole thing opens up to us, and we say, here am I in the midst of all this. And if I understand these things, I will be armed. I will be able to live proactively, taking initiative in life rather than just reacting all the time to circumstances that knock me around and run over me like a truck. Because they did not pray, the three disciples did not understand that it was as if as they lay there in that garden slumbering, they were falling asleep on a railroad track and the express train was due any minute. Prayer is that which would focus the radar of the Spirit of God on spiritual warfare happening even in the present hour for you and me. Secondly, in Matthew 26, in this depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe prayer calls believers to become more aware of their own dire weakness. Jesus, you would say, showed weakness here. We're not blaspheming him to say he showed weakness, human weakness. He was collapsing. He was coming apart. He was saying in so many words, "I'm, I'm unhinged by what I see. As God's eternal Son, the humanity of Jesus, in his weakness, in his desperation, he was required to pray, to grasp his Father and somehow hold on in the midst of this tremendous hurricane that was approaching him. But the disciples, you see, didn't sense that weakness, at least not at the moment. Later they did. Later they understood. In fact, that's why this incident got told. As the Spirit of God directed them, the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of the three of those, these authors of the Gospels were there, but the three men who were there reported what they said and what they did and the fact that they slept when they were told to watch, even though they must have been very embarrassed to say, well, he told us 
to watch and pray, and we fell asleep. How stupid we were. We didn't know how weak we were then. But now we do. Now we, we grasp that we were helpless and naive and childish even. Jesus reminded disciples then and now in verse 32 that our spirit is willing to pray, but our flesh is weak. Boy, isn't that where we live? Bring prayer up with almost any Christian and say, if a pastor was bold enough to have, I sat any one of you down one-on-one and said, I'd like to talk about your prayer life. You would probably want to change the subject, wouldn't you? Or you'd find some way to speak in generalizations because you'd be thinking, oh, no. He's going to find out that I don't really pray very much. He's going to find out that I think prayer is very difficult, and I'm not one of those people gifted to do it. And I know I'm supposed to. And I know because I'm created in the image of God and born again by the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit lives in me that I have the capacity to pray. Lions don't have that capacity. Chimpanzees and dolphins don't have it. They may be the most intelligent of animals, but they don't pray. We have the capacity, and we know we should, and we hear God's call, and yet all of us lives at this point of verse 32. The Spirit is willing to, but the flesh is weak. We can always find something else to do. If anybody here subscribes to a newspaper, I doubt very much if that newspaper comes into your house and goes in the basket or wherever you put the papers, you know, to go out for recycling without being read. You say, oh, I pay for the paper. Of course I read it. You may read it fast or you may read it long, but you read it. And yet, many don't spend as much time praying in a day as they spend on a newspaper. You know, when you think about it, every element of biblical prayer is that which actually reduces us to understand how weak we are, how small and insignificant we are. Just think about, what, what are the elements of prayer? Praising God, remember the ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Every single one of those elements or acts that we do in prayer is something that makes us understand that we are the inferior and weak person speaking to the superior and great person, right? There isn't anything you ever do in prayer that puts you in the upper position and God in the lower position. And that's why maybe the extreme act of prayer in the Bible is when someone prostrates themselves literally on their face before God. Prayer is a dependency relationship in which I am the subordinate partner and God is the superior partner. I'm constantly reminded that I'm weak. Now here's the point I'm trying to get to. If Jesus in his flesh even knew that weakness, that he needed to pray, can we honestly imagine that we at our best as prayers will be stronger than he was at his lowest? No. We're powerless And prayer is never going to come naturally to us. And folks, I need to tell you, stop feeling guilty if you struggle with prayer. Every person here has some struggle with Matthew 26, 32. The spirit is more willing to pray than the flesh is willing to respond and be disciplined about doing it. Stop feeling guilty about it. Stop thrashing yourself. But don't walk away from it either. 
Because, you see, realizing your weakness just demands all the more that you must take that weakness in hand and say, I still must pray. I must do this. Jesus had to do it. And so must I. Your weakness doesn't give you a license to say, well, I find prayer difficult, so I, I need an excuse. For, you know, I used to love the excuse from Jim. You know, you'd, certain days you just didn't want Jim. We had swimming in our school. Not all schools had that in a pool where the water was heated, I think, to about 110 degrees. And the consistency of chlorine to water, it was two parts chlorine to one part water. It was horrible. It was just a very, I hated it. And, you know, I, I would periodically, I, I think I actually did have athlete's foot at some point or other where it was sort of legitimate, but I was glad for any kind of excuse to get out of swimming. Well, we're happy for excuses to get out of praying. You know, we say, it's hard. I can't do it. I can't concentrate. It doesn't work very well. I must not be one of those people who's gifted to pray. I will have to leave it to the spiritual members, the elders, and the pastors. I'm sure they're praying enough for everybody at Westminster. So God will just understand that it's not my gift. No, you can't get away with that. Neither can we claim exemption from prayer based on some kind of seniority or, or extra experience as if, well, I've been a Christian now for 50 years, and, and I've been in leadership in the church, and I understand a lot more about the Scriptures than other people do, and, and, and I just know a lot of things that other people might have to pray about a long time to come to the same conclusions. My spiritual longevity must be able to just let me fly on autopilot. I don't need to pray. Does that sound like a, an excuse God accepts? You know, I realize as a pastor, when you prepare sermons or prepare to teach, you can, you can do that preparation based on skills you've been given and education you've had and experience of, of many years and things that you just know and so on. And you can put something together, and maybe you can even put it together in such a way that it will sound impressive and people will say, wow, that's really neat. But if you're going to bring the anointing of the Spirit of God upon the Word of God, no matter how many hours you spend preparing something to preach or teach, you have to pray. That's where the anointing comes from, when God's Spirit really grapples with where people live. And so I believe brand new believers are called to prayer along with senior Christian leaders. We're called to this exercise of praising God, confessing sin, giving thanks, giving Him our petitions, all exercises that say, I am weak, I am needy, I am nothing. Lord, I come to You, my all in all. I come to You because I must. I do it imperfectly, I do it poorly. But even acknowledging my weakness, You're calling me out of my comfort zone to pray as the New Testament says, without ceasing. That means every day. That means in a constant attitude. Sure, you're not praying every second of every day, but every day is laced with prayer. We're called to it, even in our weakness. And finally today, the three petitions of Jesus that we see in Gethsemane so familiar, and they, they do progress slightly. I'm not really developing this in full array this morning, but you could see if you looked at verse 39 how he first says, Father, 
if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then 42, the, the learning, you might say, of prayer has kicked in, and he says, Father, if it is not possible to be taken, then may your will be done. Jesus was, in the amazing words of Hebrews, learning obedience as a son. His humanity was bending to the Father's plan. And in the third place here, then, I say that prayer is the testing ground for God's unfolding will. Again, so many people have a consumer attitude about prayer. You know, they suppose God is sort of a, he has the greatest of all websites. And he operates an online shopping service. You know, God predated the Internet. And you just go to God and you... uh, plug in and, you know, put in your code and you say, okay, God, here I am to order a few things. I need these material blessings. I, I need this new job. I need this to change for my children. Uh, my wife needs to be relieved from disease, and uh, world peace would be nice too. And then having submitted our order, we stand back and wait for God's delivery. You know, I, there are online shopping services. I, I buy books from a place where you can order books in the early afternoon of a, of a Thursday and watch the book be delivered at 10 o'clock the next morning. Unbelievable. But that's how we expect prayer to work. Here's my order, God. Where's the blessing? And amazingly, when, when people don't see that work the way they think it should work, that infantile assumption, they walk away. They say, oh, prayer, prayer doesn't work. And they had such a silly notion of what it was. I've said many times, you've heard me say this sentence, I'll keep saying it a long time, maybe somebody will start hearing it and understanding it, that true prayer is not about getting what I want from God. It rather is about learning to want what God wants. True prayer is not about getting what I want from God. It's about learning to want what God wants. That's what's going on here with Jesus, you see. He brought his father as much as he knew in his humanity, and it was a great deal. He did know a lot about what was going to Remember, in Matthew, he's already predicted several times in great detail what was going to happen to him. The cross and the rejection and everything, all the detail. He had told people it was going to happen. So here he is with that much knowledge of what God's will is, but he's shrinking from getting a hold of it, from entering into it in the horror of being cut off. And that's the greatest thing, of course, the idea that Christ was cut off from his Father. He knew that hour was going to come not very far away when he would have to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what horrified him. And yet now he was praying, Father, I want your will. I truly want your will. I just want to be sure there isn't some other way to understand it. Have I understood it correctly? Now, as far as application to us, folks, I would say to you, we are not entirely in the dark about God's will for us. We like to pretend we are. Oh, I wish I knew what God's will was. Well, a lot of times I would say to you, open your Bible. You know, a minimum of 75%, if not a great deal more than that, of God's will is in black and white in the Bible. You, you, you just can't go through your life and, you know, go into some flagrant sin 
or act of disobedience and, and do something the Lord says don't do this and then say, gee, I'm really trying to find out what God's will is. God's will is known. And you must take what you do know of God's will. And of course, there I realize there are vague areas, there are gray areas, and we say, well, the Bible doesn't seem to have anything black and white. So you take as much as you know, and you spread it before God, and you say, Lord, based on what I do know, show me the rest of the way. Help me to understand. Here's what I think it is, Lord. Am I right? Help me. I love a passage in 2 Kings 19. Hezekiah was a godly king of Judah. He lived in dangerous times. Assyria was the power that was the big danger against him. The kings, I love the name of Sennacherib. There's a good king's name. King Sennacherib, the Assyrian, wrote Hezekiah a letter in which he basically said, turn over Jerusalem or you all die. Well, Hezekiah took that letter in 2 Kings 19, and it says he went into the temple of the Lord, and the expression is he spread it out before the Lord. He took what he knew. He took the situation as it was spelled out, and he spread it out and said, Lord, here it is. Here's the situation. Here's what I know. It looks like these Assyrians are going to blot us out. What do you want me to do? Help me, Lord, with as much light as I have. I need more. Should I have courage to to go in a new direction? Do I need patience just to wait longer? Do I need repentance to bow before you in some way I have not? I want your will, not mine. Here's what I know. Show me the rest. That's what prayer is most of the time. A testing ground for the unfolding will of God. And like Jesus, many times we do know the will of God, and we ought not to walk against the grain of it and then say, God, show me something different, because secretly we're saying, I know your will, but I don't intend to do that. Tell me something else. Prayer might mean stripping away our desires, our approaches, our understandings to yield to God. First John 5.14 has that great promise that says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. Much of the work of prayer is learning what that will is and embracing it. Close friends failed Jesus that night, but prayer didn't. The sleepers for whom he was about to die lost their chance for strength and triumph in prayer. He didn't lose it. He got up from that place Affirming the Father's will there, he was able to go forward and endure the cross. Another place says, for the joy that was set before him. May God call us to close our eyes, our physical eyes in prayer, in order that by his Spirit we may see a new world of vision. That we might see new faith and new power on our behalf in the heavenlies with our spiritual sight. That's what it means to have eyes wide shut. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to pray in our weakness, in our rebellion. Do not let us go when we excuse ourselves from prayer time. Call us even in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our incomplete words, in our inarticulate sentences pour our hearts out to you, to bring you what we know, to spread it out, and to learn great and wonderful things that you have for us. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.